This is not fundamentally, with one exception that I'm going to get to, about money. Some people have this impression that if we get the federal government to send huge amounts of money into the cities, we're going to solve these problems. It's not so. Change is going to have to come at the local level, city by city, metro by metro, by organizing coalitions for change that can affect the basic power equation of how resources are used and allocated in these cities. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is your host, Mike Hancox, and today we continue our series of podcasts on urban resilience in partnership with our friends at Island Press. Island Press is the world's leading publisher of books on the environment, and if you want to learn more about Island Press or their Urban Resilience Project, go to www.islandpress.org backslash capital U, capital R, capital P. Over the past decade or more, there has been a resurgence in growth in many American cities that had for decades prior been seeing disinvestment, population declines, blight, and fiscal struggles. As cities like Richmond, Virginia, Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, and many others across the country have seen new energy, there are big questions about who has benefited from this resurgence and how have these revitalization efforts affected economic and social equity, as well as how they have positively or negatively impacted diversity and race relations. To talk about these issues, our guest today is Alan Malik a senior fellow at the Center for Community Progress in Washington, D.C. He is the author of many works on housing and planning. He has served as director of housing and economic development for Trenton, New Jersey, as a visiting scholar at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, and as a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He is also the author of a brand new book from Island Press, The Divided City, Prosperity and Poverty in Urban America. Alan, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Alan, there seems to be there's a growing demand across the country for urban living. We see both millennials and baby boomers wanting to live in, a, in more walkable communities. And that demographic pressure has, in some large measure, created a real estate boom in many cities, which from a carbon footprint and environmental perspective, seems like a very positive development. Your book looks at the equally important economic and social impacts of this resurgence, and you conclude that our cities are becoming more segregated and less equitable. Can you help us understand this dynamic and how it's happening? I'll do my best. Okay, first, I agree. I think the movement back to the cities is a very positive development, and I think it's quite exciting. The fact that you now have literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, mostly well-educated young people who want to live in cities, want to live in high-density, mixed-use, historic, kind of traditional urban environments. And also that the cities are generating the jobs and the activity to draw them. So I think this is exciting, and this is tremendously important. There's no particular benefit to being having a place that's entirely poor and struggling and disinvested. The problem, however, is multiple. First, this change is not affecting cities as a whole. It's typically affecting outside of a couple of outliers like Washington, D.C. or Seattle. It's affecting very small 
parts of these cities, usually the downtown, the area around the major medical institutions or higher education institutions, a couple of favored neighborhoods nearby. And most of the city is basically a different world. Secondly, the jobs and the investment tend to be concentrated in these areas and tend not to really be benefiting the people who live elsewhere. In fact, one of the things that I found that just was pretty amazing is that even though these cities are growing jobs, they're actually losing workforce because the jobs are all being filled by people who are coming and commuting from the outside. So what you have is this amazingly polarized city where you have certain areas that are thriving beyond what anybody would have believed possible 10 or 20 years ago, other areas that are actually continuing to decline, and things are actually getting worse. There's more poverty, more abandoned housing, more vacant lots, more unemployment. So it's a real, almost like a conundrum of how the cities are simultaneously revolving and declining at the same time. So in the course of your research, do you have any conclusions about you know, how do we combat this problem? I think there are a lot of issues here, and it's really difficult sometimes to unpack them. I think, to me, when we look at what we're trying to accomplish, if we want a truly inclusive society, it's really about one word, opportunity. And when I think of opportunity, I think of it in three areas. One is that people should have the opportunity to be able to find and hold a job that provides them with a minimally decent standard of living. Number two, people's kids should be able to get the kind of education that gives them a leg up in terms of their lives and their ability to find good work and live productive lives. And thirdly, People should be able to live in neighborhoods which meet at least reasonable minimum standards of health, safety, cleanliness, basically decent housing, and services. Now, not everybody is going to be able to live in Short Hills, New Jersey, or Gross Point, Michigan. You know, this is, after all, a capitalist society where money has its effects. But I think everybody should have these three basic opportunities for decent work, decent education, and a decent neighborhood. And the question of how you get there is a complicated one. And what I realized as I was traveling around and talking to a lot of people is that we actually know how to do these things. I mean, you can point to programs and communities around the country here, there, where you have a school that takes kids from the poverty backgrounds in the toughest areas and enables them to get into and graduate from college in large percentages. I can point to another program, workforce development programs that take people, again, from the toughest backgrounds, ex-offenders, inner city people, and enable them to get and hold good jobs. So I think The real issue is, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we taking these individual experiences that show that we know how to do this stuff and translating them onto a larger scale? So have you drawn any conclusions regarding why we haven't? Like, what's the obstacle to that? And what's the solution to that problem? 
Okay, now the first thing is there's no one solution. And the second thing is that a lot of the things that people talk about aren't really, in my opinion, the issue. The first thing is this is not fundamentally, with one exception that I'm going to get to, about money. Some people have this impression that if we get the federal government to send huge amounts of money into the cities, we're going to solve these problems. It's not so. Change is going to have to come at the local level, city by city, metro by metro, by organizing coalitions for change that can affect the basic power equation of how resources are used and allocated in these cities. Before getting into that more, we'll say there is one area that I think the federal government has an absolutely essential role to play. And that has to do, I suspect perhaps you and many of the people listening may have read a book that came out a couple of years ago by Matt Desmond called Eviction. And it makes a really important point. If you are poor or near poor in the United States today, and you aren't one of the lucky few were able to get either subsidized housing or what's called a housing choice voucher, which picks up that part of your housing expense that you can't afford, you are in big trouble. You're going to be paying 50, 60, 70% of your gross income just to find an even minimally acceptable place to live for you and your family. And what that means is you really can't afford it. Anything goes wrong, you go over the edge you can't make the rent, you get evicted. And millions of people are evicted every year in the United States because they simply can't make the rent. And what we need from the federal government, basically the way we have a, we have a program called SNAP, used to be called food stamps, that makes sure that every family has at least minimally decent food to eat. We have Medicaid, which provides a floor for healthcare for people, however little money they have. We need something like that for housing. Because when people get evicted on a constant basis, what you then have is homelessness, you have family insecurity, people can't keep jobs, people can't work steadily, their kids are constantly moving in and out of different schools and can't learn. The neighborhoods where they live are constantly being disrupted and undermined. So that's the one area where the federal government really has to come in. And on this question of, and I think that this is a really, the housing issue is a hugely important issue, but the issue that you raise about how resources are allocated and used within communities, within cities, and that the coalitions to kind of create the political power, if you will, or, or the, the ability to access those resources is, is such a huge issue. Are there places or examples where you can give us where communities have come together and created those coalitions that are effective? I don't know of any, frankly. I think it's really difficult because let's take the issue of workforce, getting people into decent jobs. Again, if you look at most of these cities, not all of them, but the ones that are really reviving, places like Baltimore, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, there are a lot of jobs. And most of these jobs do not require a college degree. So people have come up with ways to enable people to get these jobs. But what they realized, it's not just about training somebody for a specific skill. It's about a whole series of things. 
It's addressing a whole complex of issues that are blocking people who are in poverty, people who live in the ghetto, people who have criminal records, etc., from being able to access this, these jobs, including the fact, which I think we have to recognize, that living in poverty and living in an area of concentrated poverty is a traumatizing experience. And in fact, there have been a number of studies that have shown that the rates of PTSD for people who live in inner city neighborhoods in our cities are comparable to or higher than among service people who've served in Afghanistan or Iraq. So we have to start with recognizing issues like that. We have to start with the fact that huge number of people have legal barriers to keep them from getting jobs. They have transportation barriers, that they lack the soft skills or the basic education and so forth. So the point I'm making is that if you're going to try to tackle this, you need somehow to get an awful lot of different people in different areas of different organizations, different skills and so forth together to organize a system that works together. Now, the problem with that is that in a city like Pittsburgh or Philadelphia, there might be a hundred or more different organizations that have a little piece of that. Each one of them is dependent on their particular funding stream. Each one of them is limited by federal, state, local, other regulations and guidelines to what they should do and shouldn't do. Each one of them has relationships with corporations and so forth. Pulling those people together getting them to subsume their interests to the common goal of maximizing opportunity for the people in the community is an incredibly difficult problem. I think people are starting to grapple with this. I think the city of Louisville is making a real effort to tie these pieces together under Mayor Fisher. The city of Newark has just started an initiative to try to do this. But it's incredibly difficult. We have this incredibly fragmented system. And as long as these people don't work together and don't, if you will, confront power as one rather than as a hundred separate organizations, each one looking for crumbs, basically, nothing's going to change. So in your, in your work in the various cities that you looked at, are there any cities that have done better than other cities in terms of uh, addressing these issues? I can't really say that there are. I think, obviously, some cities' situations are better in some cities than in others, but usually not because of deliberate, systematic efforts. I think part of the problem is that while I think people in these cities are all trying, I mean, one of the things that is amazing is the energy and the creativity of people on the ground in terms of trying to deal with these issues. But the efforts are very small scale. You know, you point to a program here that reaches, let's say, 100 people or even a couple, a few hundred people, a program there that's managed to make some real change in a particular neighborhood. But I think at the citywide level, I think this is a problem that really cuts across every place in the United States. So do you think that this um, resurgence of cities, this rent urban renaissance, is cyclical or do you think it's a long-term trend? Boy, that is a tough question because, you know, somebody has been credited to Yogi Berra, 
Niels Bohr, other people, came up with a line that says, prediction is really difficult, especially when it's about the future. And it is. I think the principal reason we're seeing the resurgence, other than the change in people's affinity for urban living, is a long-term one, but whether it'll go on is a big question mark. And that is, it's really interesting. If you look at the scale of the healthcare industry and secondarily education and higher education in particular within the economy, it has grown exponentially since the 50s. At the same time as at least in these cities, manufacturing has gone down. So the cities are benefiting from a long-term trend in increased healthcare spending and higher education spending. At least those cities that were positioned to benefit from that trend by virtue of the historic investments. So for example, you have places like Johns Hopkins, Case Western Reserve, Cleveland Clinic, University of Chicago, Let's go down the list. All of these places that were created in most cases back in the 19th or early 20th centuries and were just sitting there ready to absorb this massive increase in spending and jobs and activity that came out of the national economy. So the big question is, now that cities like Baltimore and Philadelphia and Pittsburgh have essentially re-geared their economies away from manufacturing and into what people call eds and meds, other people call the knowledge economy. The question is, where is that going to go in the future? Certainly, there are a lot of people who look at the share of the U.S. economy being spent on healthcare and say, this is unsustainable. We can't continue to see that grow without it doing damage to the rest of the economy. I don't know if that's true or not but it's certainly a widespread concern. I think there are questions about technology and the extent to which they're going to result in job loss. There are all kinds of projections people have done that 30, 40, 50% of the jobs in the United States are vulnerable because of robotics and artificial intelligence. There are issues like, you know, it's interesting, the whole question of self-driving cars and other kinds of vehicles is an incredibly complicated one in terms of its implications for the cities. I think one thing that people I don't think have processed yet, one of the largest sectors of relatively well-paying work available to people in the United States without much formal education is driving vehicles. There are almost 5 million jobs in the United States driving vehicles. And taxis, buses, sales, deliveries, and so forth. An awful lot of these could be lost. So that's the other side of the coin. On the other hand, I think the basic dominance of key cities, like, again, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, in terms of healthcare and higher education, is likely to be a long-term phenomenon. I think there are a lot of cross-currents going on, which are very hard to predict currently in terms of the long term. But I'm inclined to think that a lot of the revival is real and is sustainable on a long-term basis. 
They think that the issue of jobs and employment and technology, I think, is a really complicated one. And there's a, just a big focus right now on technology is going to destroy all the jobs. But I think if you look throughout history, technological advancements have destroyed industries and created new ones pretty consistently. Right. At one point, I don't know what percentage, 90 percent of Americans worked on a farm and now two percent of Americans work on a farm. And there's still a lot of people working. So I think that's exceptionally hard to predict. And I've heard I've heard predictions that the automated vehicle will act, automatic vehicles will essentially replace drivers. But there will be a whole bunch of other jobs that are created as a result of that. And it won't really be a net negative. I think the challenge becomes do we have an educational system that is able to adapt and educate people for the jobs of the future, recognizing that 65% of the jobs that will, for kids entering kindergarten now, 65% of the jobs that will be available to them do not exist today. So how do we create an educational system that is more adaptable and quicker and allows people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s to adapt and change? But I do think this urban thing, I think one of the things you see from technology is that there's more and more, there's a separation of employment from location, right? So even I saw yesterday, the state of Vermont is offering bonuses to teleworkers who will come and live in Vermont. I saw that. If I were younger, I'd be tempted. You'd be tempted. So people, um, it's not a huge program. It's kind of a, that's a whole other subject. But, but I think what you see is more and more people are, jobs are following people where people want to live. So you've got this dynamic where baby boomers now want to live in more walkable communities. So to some degree, they're providing a lot, a lot of the money that's driving housing markets because they have money, they're moving, they have retirement money. And then you have millennials who are kind of providing the energy, if you will, for these urban places, right? They're the foodies. They're the people creating the new restaurants and the cool places where people want to go. The question in my mind becomes, and I've seen this in the past, when those millennials become of, when they get to the point where they actually want to have families, are they going to want to stay in these urban areas? And are we, if we're not addressing these issues of equity and race and school systems, inevitably what will happen is those people will want to live somewhere else and a lot of them will be able to live somewhere else. And you'll see a trend out of the city if, if it's not the kind of long-term place that people want to stay. So I think that there, what you see in a lot of places is municipalities really focused on things like jobs as opposed to quality of life. And those, as you said, like there's no shortage of jobs necessarily in, in some of these urban areas, but a lot of the people doing those jobs, you see the, the exodus in the evening and you see the the influx in the morning of people coming from the burbs to those city, to those jobs in the cities. What the cities need to do is figure out how do I get people to live here and care about this place more permanently? And I think the issue of affordable housing is such a huge issue that you raised earlier. As those baby boomers, that influx that's driving those real estate markets is also creating a lot of unaffordability for a lot of people. And people can't stay and, and we've got to figure that problem out, right? Let me unpack there are at least you know three or four key issues in what you were just saying. Okay, first, I think a fair number of the young people who are moving into the cities and not only driving the restaurants and the activity and so forth, but to the extent you know you have like in Pittsburgh and in St. Louis, an emerging tech sector, they're also driving that which is really important from an economic standpoint as well. But I think a lot of those people are at least relatively open to staying in the cities and raising their kids in the cities. And there's some 
indications of this. But I think you're right. It goes back to can they find livable neighborhoods? Can they find schools that they're comfortable with? And do they feel safe? And I think not just for them, but for everybody in the city, I think cities really have to focus on quality of life issues and decent education issues much more systematically than they tend to. There's some really good examples. For example, in St. Louis, wonderful story. There's a group of parents in a fairly changing neighborhood got together and created a Montessori charter school called City Garden with the goal that it would be a racially and economically integrated school where 50% of the kids would be eligible for free or reduced price lunch. And that school, it's a K-8, has been recognized as one of the best schools, not just in St. Louis, but in the state of Missouri. And, And I've talked to people who actually went to buy houses in that neighborhood in the hopes that they'd be able to get their kid into City Garden. And there are other examples that are similar, but that's a particularly powerful one, particularly because of its commitment to integration as well as quality education. At the same time, at the other end, you've got a situation like Detroit, where charter schools proliferate, mostly for-profit, with no accountability, no controls, no nothing. And it's become the Wild West or a race to the bottom in terms of education. So there are good examples, but there are also, you know, some pretty bad ones. So I think cities that focus on quality of life can hold a lot of the young people who are coming in as they raise their families. But the catch is cities that focus on quality of life just for that purpose and just to hold middle class or well-to-do, well-educated, and parentheses, predominantly white, close parentheses, households, are perpetuating the same inequities that exist. They may be fostering greater revival, but they're not fostering opportunity and equity. So quality of life has to be for everybody. And I would argue and I would argue that, that you can't really have quality of life for some segment unless it's a walled off area of the city, right? Because if you don't what breeds crime is poverty, right? So and that economic inequity where there are people who don't have opportunities and the rational decision really because they have so little economic opportunity. It's actually a rational decision to actually be involved in drugs or other criminal activities. So unless you're going to wall off a part of the city, you can't really create quality of life in one part of the city without addressing it really across the entire community. Yes, but you would be amazed how easy it is to effectively wall off one part of the community from another. In fact, that's it doesn't involve literally building a wall. It involves how policing is done. And it's actually very common in the United States, in our cities. We do have, and we're or we're moving towards at least, areas that are increasingly symbolically and from a standpoint of policing, walled off from other parts of the area. So unfortunately, I don't think the picture you're describing is as far-fetched or as unrealistic as I wish it were. I think it's sadly very real. 
we do wall off parts of the city in ways that are less visible than building walls, but equally powerful. But going back to one of the point you made about the separation of work from place, this is definitely happening. But the interesting thing is, and this is one of the things that has made the urban revival so powerful, is I think some people believed that once we had, you know, with the internet, with everything else, people could work anywhere and live anywhere and commute essentially electronically. And what we've discovered instead, especially with knowledge industries, I mean, obviously, you know, if you're going to have a major medical center like a Johns Hopkins or a Barnes Jewish hospital in St. Louis, that is a huge physical environment and people have to be there. But even in other areas where, on, in theory, perhaps people could work from a distance, having kind of contiguity, having people coming together, having people sort of interact with each other directly, having people brainstorm and all that sort of thing, seems to make a huge difference. And I think, oddly enough, one of the things that really makes cities work today as much, if not more than ever before, is the way they bring people together. So there really is something to the idea of physical propinquity, being together, coming together in a place that I don't think is going to be replaced by any form of technology. I think you know, there's going to be a certain amount of you know, telecommuting and remote working, and a few people will live in Vermont and be able to work for an organization based in Palo Alto. But I think those human connections are still really important especially when you're talking about creating ideas and creating sort of transformative processes. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a there's somewhere in the middle where people are able to work in in downtown Baltimore and commute in one or two days a week for those kind of events and then live somewhere else. Live an hour away. And I think increasingly are seeing that in a lot of places. Alan, it's a fantastic conversation. I wish we had more time, but I think we're we're a little over our time today. Can you share with folks where they can learn more about your work? Well, I think the best way to start is read my book. Where can they buy that? Okay. The book is coming out officially on June 12th. It'll be issued, and it's available directly from Island Press or from Amazon, or I hope you can always go to your local bookstore and if they're not stocking it, which I hope they would, they can order it for you. So I think it's going to be very available. It's a good read. It's not written for a narrow professional audience, but written for anybody who cares about these issues. And I think that's the best place to start. And the book, again, is The Divided City, Prosperity and Poverty in Urban America by Alan Malik. Alan, thank you so much for um, spending the time with us today. Thanks for a great conversation. And thank you for the work that you do. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. 
To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.